0: Good morning, everyone. We're going to be reading Mark 10, 1 through 12. If you're using the Blue Bibles under your chairs, it's on page 938. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, He was, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, thanks be to God truly for his word again this morning. Uh, Again, if you're just now joining us in service, my name is Evan Skelton. I'm one of the pastor elders here at Bayless. And I, uh, if this is your first time, well, welcome to Bayless. Uh, It's a, last week was your uh, first week. Well, welcome back. We, uh, I'm surprised you came back. It's awesome. Nonetheless, we have, it's funny. Uh, As I mentioned last week, it is very good that we preach expositionally here, which means verse by verse through the Bible, because I would not have picked, if it was me, a sermon on hell to be followed by a sermon on Divorce but unless all God's word is words that we need today. And I, uh, if I'm honest, I think, though, preaching last week's sermon on Jesus' warnings about hell, about the doctrine of God's very real and certain judgment, in many ways, it might surprise you to hear this, I think in some ways it's easier. Because as necessary as it is, and even as it's uncomfortable, I think many of us, uh, it makes more sense for to hear someone like me preach on topics like that. In fact, if you grew up in the church, you may be used to your pastor delivering a lot more sermons on hell, maybe more fire and brimstone preaching. And I have to tell you, I think, though, this week's passage is in many ways even more controversial. It is even more difficult. Why is that? Well, I think three reasons. To give you way too long of an introduction, let's talk about why talking about divorce is so difficult. First, I think we could say in a culture like ours, as we even prepare to talk about this, it's such a pervasive problem that it steps on almost everyone's toes. You see, according to, well, let's see if I can get this right, statistics, 50% of all marriages in the United States today will eventually end in, in divorce or separation. 50%, one and two. Nearly twice the rate that it was 40 years ago. Only 40 years ago. And surprisingly, according to some st- statistics, there we go, this rate actually goes up among many religious people. Now I have to tell you, that that isn't often quoted statistics, is that well, well, Christians can't even get their marriages right, that they get divorced at 60%. That is true if it regards confessing Christians, meaning if they're asked on a survey, are you a Christian, they would say yes. But if you look at actually active Christians, meaning those who are uh, showing up weekly in a local church, do you know the statistic actually goes down very fast? It makes a remarkable difference for those who are active Christians, but regardless, those who are confessing religious people, the statistic goes up. You know, um, divorce you could say, in some ways, is as American as apple pie. In fact, divorce is so pervasive, it has affected, I think, our outlook on marriage itself as a society. We're in a day in which there's increasing caution, if not pessimism, about not only what the Bible has to say about marriage and what many would say is a very limited view of marriage and what it maintains, But there's actually skepticism and pessimism increasing about marriage itself, about the institution, especially among younger adults. Studies show that only half of American adults are getting married today, only half. Compare that to 72% of adults just 40 years ago. The average marriage rate is lower than it has ever been in U.S. history, and the average age of marriage is the highest it's ever been. In fact, only 60% of all live births today in the US are to married parents. An increasing divorce rate and a declining marriage rate. It's no wonder, many wonder, if even the most stable marriage could actually be all that satisfying which is one of the other reasons that it's so difficult to talk about divorce. Not just that it's pervasive, it's that it's personal. That's perhaps the primary reason. It's not just something, in other words, that happens out there in some places, somewhere. I think, rather, it's not a stretch to say that divorce has affected perhaps all of us or the majority of us in some way. Your parents may have been divorced. Your kids may have gotten divorced. You may have been divorced yourself maybe a couple times or be in the process of getting a divorce right now. And, may, and even as so much in our culture today has tried to normalize the process, done all it can to make marriage something that's easy to undo, I think we can all say that divorce is never easy. And still, more often, it is catastrophic. Some of us, even now, can feel the heat rising in our face, trying to figure out how many times you can go visit the bathroom before someone notices. In other words, the reason it's easy for some of us to talk about hell is because the problem feels out there, even though it's not, while the problem of divorce feels much more right here. Still, the third reason this topic is difficult to preach on is because divorce can be extraordinarily complicated, which is why this sermon has been weighty on me, heavy on me for some time now. Knowing that this was a topic that we were, that God's word was going to have us in, because the scenarios around divorce are never straightforward. Rarely they are. Right? They are. They never. Or I should or say, rarely lend themselves to easy answers. They're intricate. They're specific straight circumstances and. Some of us, nonetheless, even as the answers are not always straightforward, are coming today, or at least listening today, hoping for some straightforward answer. You're listening today, I know it, even as I'm preaching on this passage, wanting to know what this means for your divorce, or your parents' divorce, or whether you are free to remarry now. I have to tell you, it's almost guaranteed I will not answer all of your questions. And preaching on a topic like this has the potential of making everyone uncomfortable, perhaps even upset. And that isn't to mention all the related questions that this text mentions about sex, about gender, which is what we're going to slow down next week to cover, because I guess I don't know, I'm a glutton for punishment. But thankfully, there are no fights in the Bible um, that uh, are picked on that topic so we'll be okay uh, I know some of you are already thinking all right well okay goody here we go again but the why spend so t- so much time on uh, something that is such a pervasive and personal problem something that's so complex well I think it's because actually it is so pervasive and personal and complex because following Jesus concerns the real stuff of life it doesn't just concern theory the stuff we would it doesn't it, it doesn't avoid the stuff we would rather avoid even as no one enjoys talking about divorce it was important to Jesus himself for us to be clear on and it turns out following Jesus begins with the stuff that is closest to home what we need to notice too is that this is beginning a series of teachings from Jesus where which are just as much about discipleship as the ones preceding in fact Jesus is going to slow down give some practical consequences of discipleship to ask you ask us if we really are following him If we understand what following him looks like, and it's no coincidence that the place he begins is in marriage and in sex. Because sometimes the place we must look to see if we are actually following Jesus is in the home. The Uh, In order to do this, again, though, before we talk about divorce, perhaps, again, I've spent too much talking about divorce already, and why it's tough to talk about divorce. Perhaps we should go ahead and talk about divorce. But but before we do so, we need to follow Jesus' own line of reasoning and realize the most important conversation we need to have isn't actually just about divorce, it's about marriage. And two visions of marriage that are at war with one another. We're at war in Jesus' day, and I think at war in our own. We're gonna notice how similar the mindset, the understanding of the people that Jesus is addressing are to our own culture and society. And we're going to turn to each of these visions of marriage, which I think feed into our attitudes about divorce first, but then we're going to end, because I don't want to end just on the contrary warring visions, I want to See with what what the gospel has to say about marriage and divorce. After all, some of us are just expecting to be beat up for the next 45 minutes. I need you to hear that this sermon is about Jesus. Every sermon, I hope you hear at Bayless, is about the gospel. And not to ruin my punchline, but I think there is grace for you to be found in the gospel. And my hope is, as you are walking out of here, that you will hear and feel Jesus' hope, even as you might cringe at his demand. But let's finally get to it. Let's talk about vision number one, marriage. Uh, And it's a vision of marriage that I'm going to introduce. I'm actually going to hold off for just a second. I'm going to tell you what it is when we get to it. But now, something we need to know, though, as we begin and we look at this first vision of marriage is that something unique has begun in Mark chapter 10. A journey, the final journey, in fact, of Jesus is beginning. He's setting out from Galilee to Jerusalem. And this journey, Jesus knows, will end with one conclusion, his rejection and death upon a Roman cross. And it's as if the shadow of it is growing near, so near, in fact, that as he gets closer to Jerusalem, the darkness around him is increasing as well, the opposition toward him as well, including this public test from religious leaders. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, scenes like this pop up throughout the Gospels, particularly as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem. Scenes like this in which the aim of the religious experts, the religious teachers in Israel, isn't very innocent. They aren't looking for more information. They're not looking to find out Jesus' opinions on the top hits. They aren't looking to learn. They are looking to test Jesus, as it says. What does that mean? They're meaning... They wanted to get him to weigh in on some of the most controversial issues of the day, but not because they want to learn, not because they're curious, but because they hoped that Jesus would either misspeak and get himself in trouble with the crowds or the Roman government, or maybe he would even get himself in trouble with God's clear word, contradicting uh, what God had said. And that would prove what they already assumed. If they could catch Jesus, in other words, with egg on his face, if they could catch him saying something he shouldn't, going outside of God's word, then they could prove to the crowds what they already knew themselves, that this so-called teacher couldn't actually be trusted. And this issue was a really juicy one. You see, divorce in first century Judaism was actually incredibly common, and not just among Gentiles. You see, Jewish people seem to have been just as willing to end their marriages in divorce and it seems they suspect Jesus' perspective on divorce to be much more restrictive than theirs is. After all, they may have heard Jesus' sermon on the mount in which they heard him say things like, lust is just as serious as adultery. Anger, hatred is just as serious as murder. It may be that they expected Jesus was not only on the other side of a very popular opinion, but maybe even on the other side of God's word. After all, um, during this day, we find out from the Mishnah, which is a Jewish commentary, tells us a lot about about opinions about God's word during this time. They had a text, they had a text that they went to all the time, a text that gave them the permission they needed to get divorced, and that was found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, which I'll encourage you to go back and look to later. A text they're going to argue from later on, and it seems, and I'll again hear that word, seems to permit divorce. There, in that text, it spoke of a husband who decides to divorce his wife Deuteronomy chapter 24 and this is coming from Moses himself again their greatest prophet spoke of a man who is looking to divorce his wife who found who does so because he finds she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her that's the language of the text a wife who finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her and it seems the majority of first century Jews uh, took this text and from this text had begun to assume, well, of course divorce is allowed. And they had a verse to prove it, albeit a small, isolated one. That's more complicated than it first appears. We'll get to it in just a second. They would say though, not unless, here we have proof, Moses himself assumed divorce would happen. The question is then, when? And that's the question they debated about, not about whether or not to get divorced, About when? What are the exit signs? And it seems two camps developed at this point. According to the Mishnah, a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, again, there were followers of Shammai, uh, which was the conservative school. Not to nerd out too much, but this conservative school taught that the only ground for divorce was adultery. It was cheating on a spouse. While the uh, liberal school, the followers of Hillel, This liberal school argued that divorce instead could be granted for any matter. Or as as Matthew chapter 19 verse 3 puts it, uh, as it's speaking of the same event, it could be granted for any and every reason. For any annoyance or embarrassment. If you can believe it, in the Mishnah, again if you look at the language, this could include a wife who burned her husband's dinner or simply if she failed to please him as much as another woman. Those on their face were grounds enough for seeking divorce. Some, in other words, had taken Moses' loophole and had tried to drive a truck right through it. And it seems like this position was a popular one, the more liberal one, the one that, is, that saw a larger loophole allowed here for divorce, and it seemed to be assumed in the question to Jesus. Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And even as Mark is assuming this, Matthew expands and adds, for any and every reason? Again, look to Matthew 19, where this, again, same event includes this assumption. I know many of us view religious teachers in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and scribes, as uh, incredibly legalistic and repressive. They make convenient enemies to point now, oh, yeah, we know, all, we know people like that. But it seems these people, at least on this issue, thought Jesus was the legalistic one, the more restrictive one, the, that he was less permissive than they were. And if they could just get him to admit it, Not only would he get himself in trouble with the crowds, he may even get himself in trouble with Herod, the king. After all, thinking back in Mark's gospel, do you remember what happened to John the Baptist? He criticized Herod's divorce and eventually lost his head for it. You can imagine why this would be such a convenient question, hoping who knows what the outcome might be depending how Jesus speaks. The thing is, as a society... We're not so different than these religious teachers. Not only are we as permissive as they were when it comes to divorce, we test Jesus about his opinions on our sex lives too. For many, sex and marriage becomes the criteria on which we determine whether or not Jesus can be trusted, whether Jesus is worth following, we may even go looking for verses two to back up our position. Verses like, judge not lest you be judged, or God is love. Notice, it is this basic impulse that Jesus calls out when he responds to their question. He asks them, well, what did Moses command you? And sure enough they go right for deuteronomy chapter 24 glad you asked jesus you know what he allowed a man to divorce and write a certificate of divorce and to send her away and notice Jesus' response he isn't stumped he isn't tongue-tied without losing a beat he says because of your hardness of heart he wrote you this command talk about dropping the mic what is jesus saying here Is he saying, though, that uh, I think if we slow down, that sounds concerning. Is he saying that only hard-hearted people get divorced? No, I don't think he is saying that. But I think he is saying that divorce reveals a heart condition. That their posture towards divorce reveals a a posture they had to God himself, a posture they had to God's word. It revealed that theirs, and perhaps even our hearts, are hard. Harder than we might admit. That our basic posture toward God is that his commands and his design are in the end keeping something back from us. That, even as we might not say it, we are more loving than God is. We look at God's command as if he was robbing us from the kind of life we were meant to live. And that's something in us, and I say this for, I say this to myself, I say this for many people who, can, who consider themselves to be Christians, What sin does to us is it makes us so doubtful towards God that a basic presupposition is that we are assuming that he doesn't want good things, that he stands in the things of what we need most, and that we are always looking for an exception to his rules. It's interesting, I think we still see this today, particularly when it comes to the Bible's opinions on sex, which we'll look at more so next week, whenever... A scholar, such and such scholar, publishes an obscure article on why that particular verse doesn't actually condemn abortion or same-sex marriage or divorce. An article that's shared by some uh, uh, high-up official or church teacher or pastor. Arguments that, when you look at them, don't stand up. Not only don't stand up to 2,000 years of clear. Teaching and interpreting the Bible, but fall apart pretty quickly under any sort of serious historical scrutiny. Still, these articles and these names, it's as if the arguments in them don't matter. They trend like wildfire, as if we were just waiting for the exception, the permission to be given, waiting for a reason to say that that rule doesn't apply to us. Woo, we got it. Waiting for confirmation as if God's demand isn't really that demanding. And yet, look at Jesus' response here it's absolutely brilliant. It's like he's doing spiritual judo. You're familiar with judo? It's like he's using the weight of their argument against them to throw them off balance. As if Jesus says, Yes, but even when you said, even in your words, let's look at your words. Notice you said, Allowed divorce. Moses allowed divorce, as in Moses did not command divorce. And if you look at the context of Deuteronomy 24, you will find that Jesus is right. He's reading the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible, not even in Deuteronomy, is divorce ever commanded. Instead, what Jesus is pointing out here is that marriages were already getting divorced in these times, and because the women were often the collateral damage of these divorces, as they were in Jesus's day as well, something must be done to protect those women, to limit the ill effects of those divorces upon them, to prevent them from just being sent away in their shame. Divorce is never, though, nonetheless, prescribed. It was only added, even in this passage, to protect others from the consequences of our own hard hearts. Now, please hear me before we move on, that doesn't mean that there are never any circumstances in which divorce is allowable. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus goes on to say that there are certain serious circumstances in which a marriage may be broken. Only cases, the only cases he gives, and Paul does later, are cases in which a severe violation Now, the covenant promise was made without the hope of repentance and healing. The kind of thing that would sever a marriage is a serious violation, the result of a belligerently hardened heart for which no repentance or restoration would be possible. And the only examples of these violations, which the Bible makes clear, are adultery, which Jesus mentioned specifically. And then one that I have to tell you, many biblical interpreters struggle to understand, later articulated by Paul, which seems to be willful desertion, adultery, or abandonment. Let me tell you again, even as I'm saying, that it doesn't mean that there are no circumstances in which divorce may be allowable. If you are trying to navigate those tricky waters yourself, do not do so alone. Please, let me encourage you to reach out to one of the elders. We want to help. We want to care for you, if necessary, defend you. We want to see you walk in holiness, to trust Jesus, but not to continue to be in an unsafe situation. We are going to spend time, though, diving deeply into these exceptions, as much as we could spend a whole sermon doing so, because Jesus himself doesn't in this passage. Notice, even to speak of the exceptions, I have to go to a ton of other texts. We have to focus on what Jesus himself focuses on. After all, it is not the cases of adultery and abandonment that Jesus' audience audience, audience is debating him on. Instead, they are wanting to know if divorce can happen for any reason. And on this question, God through Moses does speak clearly. He does command something. But before we look at Jesus' response, we need to consider where this opinion, where this common opinion and assumption that they have comes from. Why does it seem so natural for Jesus' audience and us to look for exit signs when it comes to marriage? Why does divorce, even as Jesus speaks so clearly on it, become the norm? And this is actually my first point. Because the common assumption, view number one, is that marriage is a contract. Marriage is a contract. Let me explain. Uh, I want you to think of a contract that you've had to sign recently. Maybe an apartment lease, or a contract for phone service, or a scholarship. Let me ask what was in that contract, if you had one usually in a list of expectations that one party has to another. Take uh, an apartment lease. My wife and I, we lived in apartments for, what was it, nine years, sweetheart? I'm very grateful we're not uh, but with our four kiddos, but nonetheless, we had to sign many apartment leases, um, and in those, if you have one, you have to pay a landlord a certain amount of money. That's what's one on, like, line number one You have to pay a certain amount of money by a certain time. You have to keep the noise down. You can't do anything illegal in your apartment. You owe these things to your landlord, right? But so long as you do these things, your landlord then owes you certain things. What do they owe you? They owe you use of your apartment, right? To keep your water on, to take out the trash. Maybe if you're real fancy, you can use the gym or the the pool. I mean, you are owed these things by your complex so long as you succeed in meeting their needs. Let me ask you, uh, why then did you get into that contract relationship, whatever it is? If it's an apartment lease, did you get into it because you really liked your landlord? No, not likely. Rather, you signed the contract in order to meet certain needs that you had. It's what the relationship was based on. And when, importantly, it stops meeting those needs. You might have to pay something to break your lease, but then you get to find a new place to live. You can move on to something that meets those needs even better. That's what I mean that this primary view of marriage is at a contract, because in a contract, contracts are based around my needs. They are, and because they are based around my needs, they are disposable and they are easily broken. In many ways, both in Jesus' audience and ours, this is how we see marriage, that marriage is primarily about meeting my needs. It is like a contract, and it is a contract in which I give so long as you give, or you take so long as I can take as well. And when it seems I am giving more than you, or you are taking more than me, why in the world would I stick around? Think about it. Do you know what a prenuptial agreement is? I realize some of you may have signed one before you you got married, but not to put it too frankly, a prenuptial agreement is a legal document document stipulating who gets what in a divorce. It ensures that if the marriage goes south, you can keep your stuff. It is one of many attempts that our society has made to make divorce easier, more comfortable. Not to mention legal changes like shortening trial separation periods or creating no-fault divorce or even rebranding divorce. Again, the common phrase now is conscious uncoupling. Okay, We're going through a conscious uncoupling right now. In order to diminish the hurt of it all, we've tried to normalize and streamline divorce. We have tried to diminish it to a contract. But no matter how hard we try as a society, we still cannot avoid the real heartache and violence of it all. In fact, it's interesting, just two years ago, a film premiered called A Marriage Story. I don't know if you've seen this, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but a film that is actually not about a marriage, but about a very painful divorce. You know, that picture went on, that movie went on to be nominated for the best picture of the year. The question is, is why? Not because Why is it that so many identified with its message? It's not because divorce was portrayed as something easy, but because rightly it was portrayed as something nasty and traumatic. As Josh Panos puts it, there is no casual way to uncouple a marriage, just as there is no way to cut off part of your body and expect it to be bloodless. In other words, it's as if we know that marriage, even In secular culture, it's as if we know no matter how we package divorce, no matter how we package marriage, marriage isn't like another contract. It's something else, which brings us back to Jesus and the vision of marriage that he shares with us, which is much older A vision that, in fact, reaches back to creation itself, which leads to the second vision of marriage, which is not as a contract, but as a covenant. And I want us to look again at Jesus' words to see so, starting in verse 5, which we've already looked at. And Jesus said to them, "'Because of your hardness of heart,' he," meaning Moses, "'wrote you this commandment. "'But from the beginning of creation, "'God made them male and female.'" Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. Do you notice the quotes in there? The little tick marks next to these phrases? What does that mean? It means that Jesus is quoting from somewhere else. These words are not ones he's inventing. He's not giving a new teaching. In fact, he is advancing a very old teaching, the first teaching, in fact, we have on marriage itself. In other words, how does Jesus answer their question? Not by dealing directly with the rules and lines, but the created purpose of marriage itself. He says you want to understand divorce, and you want to understand why divorce is so harmful, why it's not part of God's design, is we actually have to shift the conversation from divorce to the beating heart, to the center itself. He quotes from Genesis 1 and 2, which we're going to look at a lot more in detail next week, but importantly, this passage comes before anything is broken in human history. What's important about Genesis 1 and 2 and where he quotes, it's before anything went wrong, meaning everything worked, everything was by God's design, and it comes Specifically, after God has created a partner for Adam. Noticing, again, knowing fully as the creator that it was not good for him to be alone creates a partner, creates a teammate, creates one to do the mission he had created Adam to do with him. Now, I need to say this, but he creates a partner for Adam, which is, even as it's straightforward, is not another Adam. It's not multiple Eve's but one woman for him. He gives a wife to Adam. And as a couple says in marriage vows, to have and to hold for as long as they both shall live. Notice how verse nine is often quoted in marriage ceremonies, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, Jesus is quoting from the very first marriage service in the Bible, officiated by God himself. I want us to observe something remarkable, though, here about Jesus' response. Why Why go to this passage of all passages? Because Jesus, I think, believes that our questions about marriage and sex are cleared up not by knowing where all the lines outside of it are, about where all the exit signs are, but by knowing and upholding the heart of God's intent, which I think has as much to say to those of us who are in a divorce who have experienced a divorce as it says to those of us who are single and never married or those of us who, have, who are even now married or to those of us who are widowed. What is the heart of God's intent? What is the nature then of, and, and substance of marriage? Well, unlike a contract in which uh, it's based on my needs and is easily broken, marriage is not. Its binding force is something much stronger than my needs. I realize this might sound strange based on how you have heard merit, about marriage, what you, how you've even thought about your own marriage. But think about the vows that you hear on a wedding day. It's one of the reasons as a pastor I don't allow couples to write their own vows because when they do it ends up being like oh baby I see stars in your eyes I'll make pancakes every morning I mean those are wonderful things but they mean nothing okay so we want vows vows about what how, what are the rules of this relationship moving forward vows before God and everybody else who's gathered and what are the vows that you hear often a version of in sickness and in health in poverty as in wealth in sorrow as in joy to have you and you only till death do us part let me ask you What if in my marriage ceremony, I added a phrase? After I said, till death do us part, so long as you do your part, baby. I will be faithful to you so long as you do the dishes, so long as we have sex a couple times a week. I will be faithful to you so long as you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It would ruin a bit of the romance, wouldn't it, on that day? But more importantly, it betrays the kind of commitment that is made in a marriage ceremony. It is a covenant and not a contract. In a contract, again, I only have to hold up my side so long as you hold up yours. While in a covenant, I am responsible to come through for you whether or not you come through for me. Why? Because a covenant is not primarily about my needs, but about the relationship itself a relationship that I have committed myself to in a binding, enduring way. In many ways, marriage is less like two puzzle pieces being mashed together. Think about the Jerry Maguire, you complete me. There's so many things that are wrong with that. Okay, but it's less like two puzzle pieces being joined together only to be separated if they aren't a good fit, a perfect fit. And it's more like welding two pieces of metal together. The point which God makes in Genesis, and Jesus makes too, is that marriage represents far more than a signed paper, although it's, not, it's certainly not less than that. It's about far more than an emotional connection, or about sex, although it is certainly not less than that. Yes, there even are even certain legal ways that we recognize this commitment, like sharing a last name, or filing taxes together, but it is also far more than that. Marriage is nothing less than a supernatural institution, a sacred institution, meaning a holy one, before God himself, in which God is much of an active participant as the couple that's entering into it, in which two beings no longer live as independent but dependent upon one another. Each person wholly, entirely, entrusting, donating themselves to one another in the most intimate way as as possible. In marriage, two people become a new single person bound intimately together, knowing and being known by one another as no one else does. This is pictured, yes, in the act of sex, joining the flesh that was divided together into one flesh, but it's about far more than that. As Jesus puts it, it is as if that is only a picture of what is now the reality for as long as they both shall live, that they are one flesh welded together. And this is why when Jesus is asked about divorce, when he is asked where the exit signs are, he functionally responds, what exits? Do you not know of the nature of the thing that you are trying to rend apart? What was two isn't two anymore. It is one, joined together by God himself. Now I need to say, friends, even as I've said that there are biblical grounds for divorce and we're not going to spend a ton of time on that. I need to tell you too, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. If you have been divorced, we do not want you to run from the church. Instead, we want you to find grace and fellowship here. The same grace and fellowship as all of us do as those who are forgiven sinners walking in obedience to Christ And yet Jesus implores us, even as divorce is not the unforgivable sin, Jesus implores us to avoid it, to keep that off the table of options, not as the first resort, or the second, or third, or fifteenth. But that is not all he implores us to do. He doesn't just implore us to avoid divorce wherever possible, but to preserve marriage, I need to say this because I fear some of us, perhaps even the majority of us, have, are not fearing divorce or recovering from one, but have settled into a passive roommate relationship in the marriage we have. We pride ourselves that we haven't gotten a divorce, all the while we are living functionally as if we had. We settle, some of us, into cold, loveless marriages and assume somehow we're following God's command. This is why Jesus' approach is so vital. He goes back to the intent of marriage, a lifelong relationship of exclusive, intimate commitment, and that, my friends, takes work. Tim Keller puts it this way, while marriage is many things, it is anything but sentimental. Marriage is glorious but hard. It is a burning joy and strength, And yet it is also blood, sweat, and tears, humbling defeats, and exhausting victories. No marriage I know more than a few weeks old could be described as a fairy tale come true. At times, your marriage seems to be an unsolvable puzzle, a maze in which you feel lost. I'm not going to ask for amens in that. Don't take your marriage for granted, friends. Don't assume you are above failing. Don't assume that because you are married and have stayed married, that simply that is enough. There are few things as precious in life as your marriage to your spouse. You may not feel like it, but before God, it is true. Friends, don't just stay married, but please, God, do stay married. According to several longitudinal studies, two-thirds of those unhappy marriages, those who are in unhappy marriages now, and this is secular studies, and I can send you to them. According to several longitudinal studies, two-thirds of unhappy marriages will become happy within five years if the people in them stay married and don't get divorced. But again, it's not the secular statistics that lead me to say stay married, but more importantly, because of something else that's on the line the glory of God himself, which we're going to turn to in just a second. And I have to say this, if you are married, one of the most precious and one of the primary places that you have to show what it means to be a Christian and to show off what the love of God is like for you, begins with how you love and lay your life down for your spouse. And so, don't just stay married. Guard your marriage. Pray together at the very least. Spend time together with the express purpose of becoming an expert on your spouse. Don't let anyone around you say they know more about your spouse than you do. Get away from the kids for once. Nurture that friendship. And if you are considering divorce, even right now, let me encourage you, please talk to someone. Please do not give up Don't stay in a dangerous situation, but also, even as I say that, consider the harm of the divorce itself, not only on your children, but also on your own soul, particularly if you don't have biblical grounds. The harm that comes every time we disregard God's word. Today, I don't know who needs to hear this, but resolve to fight for your marriage, maybe for the first time or the 500th. But to experience the true sweetness of marriage, you and I are going to need more staying power than simply getting our needs met. You're going to need the staying power of the gospel, which leads finally to marriage, divorce, and the gospel. Now, I realize up to this point, uh, a sermon like this can be enormously, tremendously discouraging for many of us. It is not uncommon for those of us who are single, maybe widowed or divorced, to feel isolated in the church. To be treated as if somehow you were incomplete or permanently stained, or maybe in process until you find your mate. Maybe for some of you, sermons like this don't seem like they have much to do with you, or they just make you feel more lonely. Certainly in the church, Many have idolized marriage. It is entirely possible for a married couple to find their identity in their marriage. And when that happens, I have to tell you, both are doomed. It's only a matter of time before that fractures under the pressure. They will put you will put pressure on your spouse if you find your identity in them and the marriage that they aren't simply they they simply aren't meant to bear. So you're gonna paper over their mistakes, you're gonna make them the hero until they're not, and then it's not long before they become the enemy. But some thing we need to remember, and I realize how strange this might sound to us, and this is why this pertains to all of us, is that marriage is not ultimate. Consider that this comes, all of this teaching on divorce, comes from someone who never got married. In fact, Jesus said that there is coming a day in which we will no longer be married or given in marriage. Why? Because In a sense, there is only one marriage that all marriages look forward to, one marriage that history is building toward, a love relationship between God and his people, which is pictured at the end of time in Revelation as the marriage supper of the Lamb in which one bride is presented to Christ forever. The love relationship that we have if you are a Christian and we are bound together forever. I don't know what that means for me and my wife. She is my best friend, but in eternity, I know that Jesus will be better. That together we will rejoice to be bound to Him, whether single or married or widowed or divorced. This is the love relationship you were meant for. The union of a marriage was meant to preach and picture the union of God and His people, and only one of those is ultimate. This temporary marriage that we that you have, you might have or long for, is not ultimate. That being said before we move on the marriage you have the reason to cherish is because of what it pictures even if what it takes from you is one is one-sided love one-sided self-sacrifice over and over and over again the bible sings over the beautiful things that god can do in a marriage like that but this love relationship what makes us to able to serve and to love and to lay, lay our lives down in that way to Find satisfaction even in our loneliness, is knowing that this love relationship that we were made for is one we actually have betrayed over and over and over again. Some of us, in talking about divorce, just reminds you of betrayal. Many of us know what it is like to feel betrayed by our spouse, by our parents. The heartache of having a marriage torn apart. Well, God has experienced that kind of pain even more deeply than us. In fact, Jeremiah 3 will be so severe in describing this condition that it will say that God himself has been divorced and we were the guilty party. And yet, Even as God, we could say, had biblical grounds being betrayed again and again and again, what do we see but steadfast love from God, a God of mercy and grace who fought for that love relationship instead, which meant that he continued to be betrayed and rejected until that love story led him where Jesus is now going to the cross. Why? So that you and I might be bound in that love relationship with him forever, a love relationship that would finally make us whole. No matter the track record we come, that we would never have to fear that spouse walking out the door. We would be his forever. If you are a Christian, that is the love relationship you've been made for. There is someone who will never leave you or fail you or abandon you, and even though you have left and betrayed and abandoned, will stay when you see him face to face, you aren't going to miss marriage, you're not going to miss sex. I wish I could tell that to my junior high self. It means that if you never get married, or have sex, or are stuck in a loveless marriage yourself, you already have the love relationship that you were made for. And so long as you have him, there is dignity in your condition. You are not alone. There is dignity in your lack joy in your loneliness. So where does that leave some of us who have been divorced, in conclusion? I need to say, if you had biblical grounds for divorce, if you have been sinned against, please know we don't want to treat you as if you had a scarlet letter We don't wanna treat you with disgust or mistrust and we want to do what we can to make sure that others don't look down on you as well. We want to grieve with you. The Father understands your pain. And yet if you are divorced and shouldn't be, then is it possible that God might be leading you to reconcile with your spouse? If you are divorcing, walking out the door for other than what the Bible says or biblical grounds, do you believe that God has mercy for you? That God's story is not done for you? Imagine the story, if possible, that God brought the two of you back together. The story of his love and rescue and forgiveness. And if that does not take place, here Jesus' strong warning. Don't get remarried. As Kevin DeYoung puts it, don't think you can always repent later. You never know. The next time you blatantly sin may be the time the Lord gives you over to your hardness of heart and puts you behind the pale. We should never expect in rejecting God's clear word that a time will come when we can come back around to it. Still, those of us who are realizing you were remarried when you shouldn't have, I need to encourage you as well, recognize first that the divorce that you had was a sin as hard as that is to say, repent for it genuinely. But then cherish the marriage you have. Jesus assumes it is a marriage and he has given you a start again. He assumes it is a marriage and it would be a further sin to break it up And so now, put on full display what God has saved marriage for, repenting for the sin that was, receiving the forgiveness that is. But now, whether you have been sinfully divorced, or your sin caused the divorce, or you were remarried and shouldn't have, let me encourage you, run to the cross of Jesus Christ. Seek his mercy. What has been torn apart, no, was not a light thing, but God's grace is greater. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Find in him the love and forgiveness of a God who was betrayed and still loved and walk and sin no more. Know who you were made for. Know that his grace is for you and that the love you have in him will heal and will stay with you forever. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lord, we come to you as the ones who need that good news, that refreshing good news that is ours through Jesus Christ. It's why they need the cross. If All of this has just reminded us whether divorce is part of our story or not. It reminds us that we are those who have earned a divorce from God and have received his love. We, were, we are now saved for a wonderful marriage, having been bought back. Well, we know the grace and mercy that is ours, that gives us mercy enough to endure, to make difficult decisions, even now, even as we're getting counsel to do the opposite, that we might bring glory to Jesus' name, and we might show what it means to find our identities in him. And we pray all these things in the name of the matchless name of Jesus Christ, amen.